Amen. Please turn now to to Psalm 79, page 622 in the Bibles under the seats. Uh, This is uh, our third and uh, middle psalm in this kind of mini-series. We're taking one psalm from each of the five books of the psalms. We're up now to book three, which is Psalms uh, 72 through 89. And so within those psalms, we're looking at Psalm 79, which is in a, a run of psalms united in authorship, one of the psalms of Asaph, as are the surrounding psalms. It is a psalm that includes words of judgment. And uh, we're even going to especially be looking at those words, uh, verses 6 and 12, uh, because, uh, brothers and sisters, these are found throughout the Psalms and uh, perhaps the uh, most often misunderstood portions of God's songbook for his people. And so we'll, we'll look at the whole Psalm, but even especially at verses 6 and 12. Let us hear now the holy word of God, Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there is no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts which they, with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. So far the reading, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord endures forever. 
Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what is an imprecation? It is, from Webster's 1812 dictionary, quote, a prayer that a curse may fall on someone. End of quote. It is from this word that some of the psalms have been called imprecatory psalms. These are psalms that contain not just a word of God's just judgment, but further than that, a prayer from God's people that the curse of God would come upon God's enemies. Now, there are many ways that these have been misunderstood, some really not even worth mentioning. I'll mention just two ways that these have been misunderstood. Some have said these psalms are just figurative. That is not true. Some have said these are just Old Testament prayers. And they have nothing to say to God's New Testament people. But this is not true either. As we will consider working through this psalm, and especially verses 6 and 12, the two imprecatory verses of this psalm. These psalms, while not a common or frequent part of God's songbook, are there. They are sprinkled throughout the songbook even. These are part of the prayers of the people of God. They are for Old and New Covenant believers both. It is appropriate, more than appropriate, it is good for us to sing and pray about the just wrath of God against unrepentant unbelief. And so our theme this morning is this, the just wrath of God fulfills many purposes and we're not going to try to go through a list of all of those purposes, but we're thinking especially about three of them and those are our three points. First, judgment for deliverance of God's people. Second, judgment for justice against God's enemies. And third, Judgment for God's own glory. Well, let's look at judgment for deliverance of God's people. There are four major categories of the Psalms that are often spoken of Psalms of praise, Psalms of lament, Psalms of confession, and imprecatory Psalms. These categories are not seamless. Uh, many of the Psalms, including this one, blend those themes uh, together. And even this psalm is sometimes called a psalm of lament instead of a, an imprecatory psalm. But the categories are helpful. And thinking of the psalms in terms of these categories is, is helpful in a number of ways. Just, just one of those ways is if we think about the psalms of praise, we, we see that this is found again and again and again. Many, many of the psalms can be psalms of praise. And then we can see that they're strategically placed Lord willing, we'll think about this more in a couple of weeks when we look at the Hallelujah Psalms at the very end of the songbook. That is, that is the last word. The last word is to praise Yahweh, to praise the name of the Lord. 
And then as we think about the imprecatory psalms, we, uh, if we try to look for a list, uh, there are some lists that are a little bit longer. They might say there's about 20 imprecatory psalms, but others would, would say, again, these categories are, are not seamless. Others, it's more common to say there's about 10 of these psalms, which is not nothing, but that's not a huge proportion of 150 psalms. But it's not only the number, but it's also the placement of these psalms. Because even if we took the longest list of imprecatory psalms that we could find, if we took a list of 20, there are no psalms called imprecatory psalms that ever begin one of the five books of the psalms or that ever end one of the five books of the psalms. Brothers and sisters, the ordering of the psalms is intentional. There's something uh, being revealed to us, even in the fact that the five books of the psalms individually, they do not begin with a curse against God's enemies. They do not end with a curse against God's enemies. It's part of the prayers of God's people. But it's not something uh, we go to frequently again and again and again. And it's and it is, as a general pattern, not our first word. It's not our last word. And so now as we zoom in on Psalm 79, we see that this is not, this particular psalm is not an everyday psalm for everyday situations. This is a prayer for people who are in the midst of intense suffering. This is a prayer for a war-torn nation, suffering under the hand of a nation known for its cruelty in its destruction of its neighbors. It is plain, though the Babylonians are not named, that this is a psalm about the destruction of Jerusalem the hand of the Babylonians in 586 B.C. This is a time when God's city, God's temple was destroyed, and we see that in verse 1. This is going to be the focus of our third point, but see right there that the place the psalmist begins is with what has been done to God himself and to God's house. God's city is destroyed, Verse 2, the bodies of God's people are left unburied. We have many more details about this from the chronicler and from the prophets. We know, for example, from Lamentations 4, verse 18, that the reason why the bodies were left unburied is not only because there were so many, but it is also because the few people who survived were running for their own lives. The blood, verse 3, is poured out and running like water. This is not an everyday psalm. This particular psalm is not an everyday psalm for everyday situations. This is a psalm for war-torn places. There's a Presbyterian minister, Michael Lefebvre. I think I pronounced that right. Ask Francois if I got that right later. And he, uh, he wrote 
he wrote a book about, about the Psalms, and he speaks there about a time when he was at a conference with uh, ministers from other nations, including a minister from Rwanda and a minister from Nigeria. And those are, those are war-torn countries. Those are places where people have seen great devastation on a national scale. And both of those ministers gave testimony to the important place of the imprecatory psalms for God's people in those places. And we know that even as we have been spared from seeing firsthand war-torn things in this state, in this nation for a long time, we, we know that devastating events can happen on individual and family levels as well as national levels. There, there are times when these psalms are especially needed and appropriate. These are part of the prayers of God's people. But brothers and sisters, uh, not every imprecatory psalm speaks to exactly this kind of situation. And I would like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're going to look at verse 22. Because there are a number of places in the New Testament where it is plain that words of imprecation are not just an Old Testament declaration, but perhaps the plainest single verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. Imprecatory psalms are not just for days when blood has been poured out like water by cruel armies. We see not only a plain declaration that these prayers are part of the New Testament voice of God's people, we see also a clear declaration that to deny Jesus Christ in any way is itself terrible rebellion and blasphemy and deserving of the just wrath of God. The just wrath of God is not only reserved for the cruel pouring out of blood the just wrath of God is deserved by anyone who denies Jesus Christ. The only way to be delivered, whether it's 
pouring out blood in murder, which is first and foremost a sin against God, even murder is first and foremost a sin against God, or the sin of blasphemy, the sin of breaking the first commandment, the sin of denying God, not trusting in Jesus Christ, whatever it is, all sinners deserve the wrath of God. And see, brothers and sisters, that there is not only words of a curse against God's enemies. We'll come back and see this more in our third point. But the psalmist is very plain about the fact that God's people who are under this suffering must confess their own sins. Psalm 79 verse 8, Do not remember against us our former iniquities. The only hope for anyone, whether they've cruelly poured out blood or whatever sins we have committed, the only hope for anyone is to trust in the poured out blood of Jesus Christ. And to never deny Him, but to trust in Him. To believe in Him. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Oh, that all would repent and trust in the name of Jesus Christ. And while imprecatory psalms are for war-torn places, the declaration of God's curse is for all to hear even as the removal of that curse is for everyone who does trust in his name. Well, let's come to our second point, judgment for justice against God's enemies. And here we're, we're going to, to zoom in on verses 6 and 12. Because even as Psalm 79 is commonly called an imprecatory psalm. I, I found four different lists of imprecatory psalms and the shorter or longer lists, they all include Psalm 79. There's really only two verses which are directly a word of imprecation. That's verse 6 and verse 12. We look first at verse 6. What does the psalmist pray? The psalmist prays to God saying, pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. Those who have cruelly poured out the blood of others will now be the recipients of the justly poured out wrath of God. That is the prayer of the psalmist and, and in this immediate historical context, that prayer was absolutely answered. The extremely powerful Babylonian nation was not long for this world. There were people who saw the destruction of Jerusalem, who lived to see the destruction of Babylon. And notice that there is a focus upon upon those who would deny God. It's really the Old Testament language which is equivalent to 1 Corinthians 16.22 where we now know the name of Jesus Christ. It's, there is a focus upon the fact that they will be judged because they do not know you, because they do not call upon your name. The second verse of imprecation, the second verse which is directly a prayer for the curse of God to come upon God's enemies is verse 12. 
And here the focus is not the Babylonians who destroyed Jerusalem with such cruelty. Now the focus is on the surrounding nations, such as, for example, the Edomites, who are singled out for this sin in, in a number of the prophets. It is a focus on the surrounding nations, such as the Edomites, who stood by and mocked the people of Israel as the Babylonians wiped them out. As the Babylonians stood in siege and starved out Jerusalem before they destroyed it, the neighbors did nothing. Indeed, uh, we read in the prophets that the Edomites even stood in the road and as the, the few uh, survivors of Jerusalem were trying to escape, they would point out to the Babylonians and say, there's, a, there's an Israelite, he went that way, go get him. But even here, the focus is not so much on what the neighbors have done to God's own people. The focus is on the fact that in taunting God's people, they have taunted God himself. The taunts, the end of verse 12, which, which they have taunted you, O Lord. Again, we'll speak about this more when we get to our third point, but we see it all throughout. There is a concern for God's own name. And this was indeed the common misconception, the common error of the day, something that the Israelites so often uh, failed to fight against as they ought. The common conception in the ancient Near East was that uh, each nation had their own god or gods, and when two armies clashed, it wasn't just army against army, it was this god or gods against this, these gods. There was only one nation that believed there was only one true god. And so the, the taunts of the neighbors is, ah, look, the Babylonians, their gods are the powerful ones. Yahweh can't stand against them. There's a complete uh, misunderstanding of the true sovereign work of God, that this was God's own jealousy, verse 5, because of the sins of his own people, and that God was in control of all things. And it is always tempting to be swayed by the common misconceptions of the day. Holding on to these false ideas about what nations are and how gods or gods relate to nations, in mocking the people of God, they're really mocking God. And so the psalmist prays, return sevenfold, return completely onto the lap of our neighbors. The taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. Now, let's uh, zoom back out. And remember in the first point I said that the imprecatory psalms are not the first word or the last word. They're not the first psalm or the last psalm with any of the five books of the psalms. People of God, does this speak to us of a general pattern? Yes, it does. While we can speak and even pray plainly about the wrath of God coming upon the unrepentant enemies of God, it should be our usual pattern to surround words of God's just judgment with words of life, with the gospel on either side. That should be our general pattern. We see that not only with how the imprecatory psalms are placed within the books of the Psalter and within the Psalter as a whole, we, we see this pattern in a number of ways. Please consider one New Testament example with me. Let's turn to Acts chapter 7. 
one New Testament example of a plain declaration of the just judgment of God surrounded by words of, of life, of the gospel. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is uh, put on a mob trial. There's no true justice going on here. And he, he gives a, a sermon, a speech before that mob. And he speaks through an overview of the history of God, including uh, God's promises and uh, his deliverance of Abraham and of the people. And then as he is uh, concluding that summary of Old Testament history, he comes to this word of judgment in Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, Stephen, who has just spoken this, this word of of judgment, you stiff-necked people. What is his last word? Now go down to verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen makes a plain declaration of, of God's judgment against unrepentant sinners. And Stephen's last word as they are unjustly stoning him to death is a prayer that they would be forgiven. As, uh, as Michael Lefebvre once said it, quote, subsequent events show that both Stephen's expectations were right. God did bring judgment upon the temple and its leadership. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And God also brought repentance and forgiveness to at least one from amongst them, Saul, also called Paul, prior to that judgment. Brothers and sisters, this should be our general pattern. Prayers of God's just judgment are part of our songbook, our prayer book. They should be part of our prayers. Have you ever prayed that those who are in rebellion against God would be judged? But it is not the first word, it is not the last word. There is a prayer for mercy, there is a declaration of God's gospel and the good news. 
And that's the, that's the dominant theme. That's the surrounding word. Repeated again and again and again throughout God's word. Well, let's come now to our third point, which we've already anticipated, that this is judgment for God's own glory. So going back again to verses 6 and 12, said this briefly, but see that in both of those verses, there is this focus upon it's, it's God's own name. It's the taunts, verse 12, which, which they have taunted you. It's those, verse 6, that do not know you. And here, brothers and sisters, this is something which is consistent in the imprecations found in the Word of God. It is not a personal word of vengeance to be personally carried out. That's a story that the people of this world love. I mean, how many movies and TV shows are dominated by that theme, right? The the renegade revenger goes out and carries out justice in his own name and for his own sake and by his own hand. That is not the pattern in the Psalms. It is God's own name which is at stake. It is his own glory which has been spit upon and God is the one who will carry out the judgment. He is the righteous judge. The Apostle Paul says it this way in the New Testament in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we see in Psalm 79, we see not only the concern for God's name in verse 6 and verse 12 and all throughout, we also see the very explicit word about the glory of God's own name in verse 9. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of Your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for Your name's sake. And there, brothers and sisters, is another uh, thing that we consider just briefly that the psalmist even though this is this is commonly called one of the imprecatory psalms there is as much in this psalm about the need for God's own people to confess their own sins as there is any word about the curse that comes about upon God's enemies deliver us from our own sins Atone for our sins. What is atonement? I mentioned this briefly in our assurance of pardon. Atonement is closely related to propitiation. They are both words that emphasize that we need to be covered, that we are all under the wrath of God. And atonement especially emphasizes that that wrath must be covered. Propitiation especially emphasizes that there must be appeasement. There must be satisfaction for that wrath. We must confess our sins and look to Jesus Christ who is the only one who can satisfy that wrath and save anyone for we are all sinners who deserve God's judgment saved only by His atoning, propitiating blood spilled for us to save us from sins. And so this is why 
in the inspired songbook of God's people, the psalmist is not consumed by the terrors of his own war-torn situation. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the psalmist, through the cruelty of the Babylonians who, who, who went above and beyond what any just judgment would ever be, and even as there are curses pronounced against God's enemy, there is a deep concern for God's own people to confess their own sins. There is an old saying, one of those sayings that we don't know for sure who said it first. It's often attributed to the English reformer John Bradford from the 1500s. But for the grace of God, there go I. And according to legend, again, we don't really know who said it, but according to legend, he said that when he saw a criminal going to the gallows. So what's the context of it? The context of it is, I deserve judgment. But for the grace of God, there go I. Please, brothers and sisters, open up the Smaller Forms and Prayers book to page 272. Page 272, this is very near the back of those Smaller Forms and Prayers book under the seats. It's part of the Canons of Dort, part of the third and fourth main points of doctrine, human corruption, conversion to God and the way it occurs. This summary of God's electing purposes and of God's just judgment. And starting about four or five lines up, there is a sentence which is, which is basically, but for the grace of God, there go I in longer form. Of, this is Article 7. God's freedom in revealing the gospel, Article 7, about four or five lines up from the bottom. Therefore, those who receive so much grace, beyond and in spite of all they deserve, ought to acknowledge it with humble and thankful hearts. Why are any of us saved? We all deserve the wrath of God because of God's grace we are saved by Christ now it continues on the other hand with the apostle they ought to adore certainly not inquisitively search into the severity and justice of God's judgments on the others who do not receive this grace. Does this confession go too far when it tells us to adore the just wrath of God? Or is this a faithful summary of the Word of God, Old and New Testament, which declares a just curse against all those who deny God's name, against all those who deny the name of Jesus Christ. 
These are part of the prayers of God's people. Gerhardus Voss once said it this way, quote, God is both sovereign and righteous. He possesses the unquestionable right to destroy all evil in his universe. If it is right for God to plan and effect this destruction, then it is right also for the saints to pray for the same. End of quote. And when we take God's word for what it is, we see this is true. This is God's Psalter. It does include prayers for God's just judgment, all for God's own glory. God's name is glorified. God is the righteous king over all. And all rebellion against him deserves that punishment even as he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we've poured out blood or denied the work of Christ, there is yet salvation for any who repents. These are not to be avoided. They are to be adored. This is all for the glory of of God. There is one true God over all. And all will bow the knee to him. Some in the glad submission of worship, others in the fearful submission of just punishment. In all things, God is righteous. In all things, his name will be glorified. Amen. Let us pray.